bolt your windows, lock your doors, check your closets, look under your bed, and then prepare yourself for it's another episode of Dark Night of the Podcast. Whoa! overworked i need a break i think we found our new theme song roger i have never heard a song that has stuck in my brain for so long against my will um it haunts me it haunts my nightmares that song and that's all i know of it is that i'm overworked oh i need a break something about that like elfin voice that's the only voice you hear throughout the entire course of the film i was i was disappointed i couldn't find out on apple music Uh, who is that siren that sings that song i need to find out i'm picturing it as the blonde that plays tina i don't know it just sounds like she actually also had like an underground like pop music career that just didn't go anywhere much like her acting career but her other endeavors went fine. <laughs> oh, yeah. We, we will talk about that. <laughs> How are you, Troy? You know what? I am great now. You know, we just went through an apocalypse here in Houston. <laughs> oh, my God. I've been seeing it all over the news. That and Ted Cruz with that new haircut. Oh, God. Don't get me started. Uh, but, yeah, it was crazy. I mean, people that, you know, and I understand. I'm from Iowa, okay? So I understand, like, people from uh, the a, a cold climate kind of making fun of people in Houston or Texas whining about the cold, but this was unprecedented. Honestly, uh, this was really unprecedented. You, we got down to almost zero degrees. That's never happened here. And our infrastructure here in, in Houston is not meant for that cold. The buildings aren't insulated for that. Um, we don't have the the public services to take care of like, the roads, because it just never happens. So literally, my water and power went out Monday, uh, mid-Monday, and did not come back on until Thursday night. So literally, for almost four days, I had no water, no electricity. The entire city was shut down. Nothing was open. Um, People, I mean, were literally freezing to death. Um, It it was insane. I've just never experienced anything like it. I never want to again. Um, even like with the hurricane season, it, I just have never seen anything like this. And I went out this morning and uh, okay. And today you literally could wear shorts and t-shirt. It's like 70 degrees. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah. But no, the stores are out of everything. You can't find water. You can't find, I mean, it's just, That's crazy. Well, I've been seeing videos all over like TikTok and Instagram of people's pipes just bursting through their walls because i mean if you live in i live in cleveland and anyone here knows that you've got to um you know turn your faucets on in the winter let them run a little bit or else they'll freeze and if they freeze they'll explode but if you guys a don't have to experience that and b your water's not even running to begin with so i'm no shock that these pipes are just exploding in people's houses it was so upsetting to see this i mean the amount of money i'm sure that um that 
people are losing um, just because of this incident. And like, like you said, you guys have to be prepared for something like this. Um, I, I saw that some of your electric bills are as high as $10,000. Yeah. I don't, I, I saw some, I saw that. I didn't read the articles to figure out why that is, but I'm like, that is just insane. Well, in some of these houses, I heard people were literally bringing their grills inside, like anything they could do to keep warm. So it's just wild, man. I, so I feel awful for you guys. And um, I definitely think the rest of the country has been looking at it with like a very sympathetic eye. I hope that they send you some relief efforts if needed, as needed. Um, I know that Biden recently just um, voiced that it is considered a, a national emergency or he, he stated, he, he like titled it that it was um, uh, a big deal. Basically, I forget how he referenced it, but I hope that they uh, send some assistance down because if you if people are really being charged 10 grand for electric bills, that just shows that aspects of our country are completely out of line and run poorly. So uh, I hope there's some assistance there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, hey, I think starting today, things will get back to a little bit of normalcy. I think I mean, the traffic is already back to being horrendous because I had to run to target to return something but literally you go in the grocery store and the shelves are cleared of food clear of cleared of water it's ridiculous uh but you know now we're supposed to like i said now we're supposed to get back up in the 70s 80s by next week so it is it's just insane um but you know what well no how, how are you anything anything exciting anything exciting happening with you uh, my, this week has been great for me um my uh, trailer dropped for rebirth i saw that yeah very good i feel i feel like it's the only thing i had to talk about but i mean it kind of you get it as a filmmaker when you're in the midst of like seeing one of your projects come to fruition and actually release to the public so yeah our trailer and our official poster both dropped courtesy of uh, midnight releasing i'm very happy with both and um uh, there's going to be uh, some waves of good news in the next few weeks regarding that. And I recently signed on to a new film project, which I'll be discussing in the next few weeks as well. And everything is just looking a little bit more uh, like it used to before the pandemic Every week by week. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I get you. I get you. Um, hopefully. Yeah. And hopefully with the vaccine and the, the COVID numbers seem to be dropping, hospitalizations seem to be dropping. So hopefully by the middle of end of this year, things will be back to somewhat normal uh, yes. as much as they can be. Uh, Fingers crossed. Because yeah, this, this has just been this whole past year since the beginning of 2020 has just been, ugh, you know, but what can you do? What can you do? You just got to roll with the punches. You know what you can do? is you can sit down and enjoy yourself a fine piece of classic cinema. Well, you know, that is the first thing I did when my power came back on was I got to watch Evil Laugh. <laughs> what a treat that was. You bringing this into my life. You, you know what? And you had never seen this before, correct? I had not. I had not. Somehow, some way, I managed to miss out on the experience of watching evil laugh you know i i don't know how many people know about this film um it's i don't uh i just remember this i picked this film because i mean i own the dvd i've i've seen this movie quite a few times uh i just remember like this was one of it has it has a very appealing cover art to the vhs box 
appealing cover art, but it has absolutely no resemblance of anything that happens in the film, like other than the house, which you see. You're talking about the one with like the four people and like yeah. then the skeleton in the robe, like looming over them. They're all like kind of similar, like alluding to aspects of the movie. Like I'm guessing that's supposed to be the killer. The four people who are not people in the movie are illustrations of characters in the film, I'm guessing. But like, it's not anything really related to the movie itself. No, no. But it was always appealing to me as a young child. Understandable. I finally, I I remember renting it for the first time and watching it in my bedroom by myself. And uh, yeah, I don't know. There's just something about this film that is just, you know, let's let's just dive right in. Um, First of all, it's directed by Dominic Brascia, who is um, best known for playing Joey in Friday the 13th Part 5, A New Beginning. He's the one that tries to offer Vic the candy bar and gets chopped to death with the axe, which leads, which basically is the catapult for everyone getting murdered in the film. Um, and, you know, this film does not shy away from the Friday the 13th references. In fact, w- one of the opening shots of the film is a character reading a Fangoria magazine that happens to have Friday the 13th Part 5 on the cover. Very subtle. And did, did Fangoria, like, help fund this movie or something? Were they, like, big backers in the production? With the massive budget that this movie had, uh, <laughs> I'm assuming that, that, that there's a good chance that maybe Fangoria, I don't know, threw them a little bit of cash and was like, show our magazine multiple times. Or they just did it without asking, I yeah, this strikes me as the kind of production that might have gotten away with that kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so let's dive right in because I have a feeling we are going to really have a blast with this one. Oh, I'm feeling it. If you haven't seen Evil Laugh, please stop and, and go watch it. It's, it's available. You can find it easily on YouTube um, for now uh, because we don't want to spoil this for you. God forbid. No, there, there's a lot of things that you need to experience firsthand. Yeah, God forbid we spoil this film for you. So the film opens up with a ominous for sale sign. And you know that, you know, this house, which is a an odd looking house. It's like it looks like it's out of the Flintstones. It does. It does. It's a it's a white stucco, just like weird shaped mini castle looking thing. Yeah. And you know, obviously there's some history of about this house because spray painted across the for sale sign is the very foreboding stay away. <laughs> like right off the bat, you are handed a uh, pretty heavy handed bit of information uh, that this place has quite a history behind it and they are not subtle about it. And then we are introduced right away to the wonderful Mr. Burns, the real estate agent. Oh. God, I will say that Mr. Burns was not my favorite actor in this film. <laughs> Mr. Burns has a very wooden delivery with a majority of his lines. Yeah, and he's very uptight. Very uptight. What a pill. Yeah, I mean, right. And then you, I mean, because right away you get this little delivery boy who is delivering groceries to the house, okay? And Mr. Burns right away is just very aggressive with him. And it's like, you better not steal anything. I, I, I'm watching you. I'm, it's like, what is he going to steal? This house is empty. It's, it's up for sale. You're given two of, I would say, and in a movie chock full of 
rough performances. You're given two of the, I'd say, weakest links in this chain uh, right off the bat, one of which being Mr. Burns and the other one being that delivery boy who can barely get a line out of his mouth. Um, and they keep alluding to him, like the way they talk about him is though he's maybe like 15, 16, but he's definitely being played, being played by somebody in their mid-30s. And like the way they dressed him even, it's very confusing. I can't tell if he's supposed to be a, like a special needs or something because they talk about him with a very sympathetic edge at one point as though he's a child. Yes, yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. And he's literally a 40-year-old man wearing a baseball cap. Yeah, he is a grown man. But, and he's delivering the groceries. And then, ugh, I don't know, I just, I can't, handle all these characters that we just are introduced to so quickly because then Jerry shows up who is this bleach blonde, just total eighties looking dude. If one of, if one of the children from village of the damned grew up and was a grown man, they would be Jerry. And Jerry is not very likable, but right. But it's, it's weird because, okay, so the real estate agent, Mr. Burns and Jerry, are there having a conversation while the delivery boy is unloading the, the groceries. And Jerry is like, oh, well, you know, if we like this house this weekend, then we're going to buy it. I, and I'm confused because can you test drive houses? I feel like what I took away from this, and I'm, listen, I'm not trying to make any explanations for this movie because there are some loose plot points. And that's putting it lightly. But um, I feel like in that situation that, Mr. Burns is so desperate to sell this house, as you learn multiple times over, um, due to the history that um, I think maybe this might be kind of like a, I'll let you do whatever the fuck it takes to get it out of my hands kind of deal. Sure, have your friends over. You can have a party. I'll, I'll, I'll pay for the food. Just please buy this house. And that's kind of how I assumed it was. I thought that too, but then a lot of, stuff doesn't make sense because then why are the, why is the whole group there to help clean and get the house ready if they don't know they're going to buy it yet? The whole purpose of the friends coming to the house was to help them clean and get it all ready for becoming this. Well, we'll get to, we'll get to that poll. One thing I learned real quick, like right off the bat with this one is trying to make sense of any major plot points, it, I mean, you basically got to throw it right out the window. Um, this follows a real loose string of a, of a storyline, but barely holding it together. And you got to cling to it, <laughs> but it's there. It's, it's there. It's just, sometimes you just kind of like turn your head and ignore some major glaring issues in the story. Um, but that's fine. Who needs a story when you got characters like Tina? Tina. We'll get to Tina. She's coming. Uh, anyway, so then the delivery boy is in the kitchen un- unloading the, the groceries, and he is saying to Mr. Burns, tell them that we don't stock bull, uh, bull's hearts or monkey brains. What? What? Yeah, they really tried to explain that plot point later in the film, too, um, and I just didn't buy it. Um, it, it there's no way you're going to easily sell me. On eating a bull's heart or a monkey brain. But you know right off the bat, again, that if they're even involving a bull's heart, that somehow, some way, a heart is going to be involved in this film. Like, it's pretty clear where they're going with that. It is, because then the very next scene, Jerry is at the Jerry's at the unloading the groceries and he's throwing a fit because they don't they they don't have bull's hearts or monkey brains, and he's just like 
berating this poor delivery boy about not having, you expect me to serve my friends this chopped beef? Ugh, just, Jerry's an asshole. And right away, thank God, he is the first character killed. <laughs> yeah. He is yeah. literally stabbed to death, and his heart, a little, you know, because we know hearts are important here, uh, his heart is cut out and thrown into a bowl. <laughs> and just left. Yeah. Um, and that's the opening scene because then the then we get the evil laughter after the character kill after the killer kills Jerry and then it cuts to the theme song. I'm overworked. Yeah. And when you say theme song, you also mean the one of the only songs played throughout the entire course of the movie. There are literally three songs in this movie that are each used a minimum of three times per song, and they keep coming back and coming back and haunting you and they just won't stop playing them and it's very grating because these songs are like they're like takes on like classic 80s tropes of songs so there's like the party song there's like the cleaning song but oh my god it's sung by one woman and she's the only person on the entire fucking soundtrack and she has a very theatrical vocal tone in, uh, in her performance and it's very hard to listen to but they're so catchy that they just become embedded in your mind and this is the first of them and it's the worst of them and it's i they are super catchy they're so catchy and yeah you're right it's the same two songs played throughout the whole movie (sighs) okay so the opening is the theme song and then just random shots of traffic and what i'm assuming is la um and then we focus in on a car that has our three male lead characters in it. We have the annoying Barney. He is very obnoxious. We have the very handsome Mark. Very handsome. Was one of my first crushes as a kid when I saw this movie because he he shows a lot of skin in this movie. Yeah. Um, and he is probably, let's be honest, he is probably one of the stronger actors in the film, um, which isn't saying much, but let's give him some credit. He's pretty and he can at least somewhat act. He can at least deliver most of his dialogue without fumbling because yes. there's quite a lot of like dialogue flubs over the course of this film. Oh, God. And then we get Johnny, who is the ever popular brother of Scott Bayo. You know what? He ain't looking half bad in this either. I got to give credit where credit is due. That's that body looking tight. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's yeah. Well, you can definitely tell it's Scott Bale's brother. They look very similar. Um, and then this film is. Correct me if I'm wrong, but this film seems to have a lot of gay homoerotic undertones to it. Oh my god! The way that the way that um Mark like talks to Barney makes me think of like a Dom sub relationship. Like, like he's always like grabbing him by the shoulder and he's like, Hey, you know, the blah, 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 da, 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 hoo, hoo, da, he, da, he, noogie, noogie, like wrap my arm around you, take you under my wing. And then I'm going to take you home and throw you in my sling. Like, and Barney's all about it, man. Like Barney is a cup and he is just taking it up verbally up the ass from from that guy and i'm sure in the shadows he's taken it physically as well because their relationship is very homoerotic lots of shirts coming off in this movie well yeah that's what i was gonna say this very next scene is that is their car apparently got a flat tire so 
for some reason, I guess, in order to change a tire, you have to be shirtless because Barn, uh, Mark and Johnny are both shirtless changing this tire. I don't know why both of them are needed to change this tire, why both of them had to get shirtless to change the tire, but they are. They're shirtless and oiled. And oiled. Shirtless and oiled. And Barney is just sitting there reading his Fangoria magazine, and there is the line where they're like, Barney, come lower the jack so we can tighten the nuts. And they say this line twice, just to emphasize how homoerotic it is. Very. Uh, lower the jack so we can tighten the nuts. Mm-hmm. Okay, guys. Yeah. With your shirts off and your glistening bodies. Come on, boys. This ain't our first rodeo. Just get it done. Right. Uh, and Barney throws a fit, apparently, because of them have not having the correct spare. And he calls Mark a dipshit. And Mark, you know, throws his wrench down and is, like, charging at Barney. And Barney's like, oh. You're not going to hit me, are you? You're going to beat me up to show your masculinity? <laughs> oh, no, please don't spank me, sir. Like, he's such a bottom. And I don't say that in a derogatory way because, you know, we all get our kicks for fun. But, God, he is the most submissive man I've ever seen. And I have seen some submissive men in my time. He is. He is. Okay, so they get back in the car and Johnny decides he has to go pee. Okay. This scene, I don't. Uh, who wrote this, and who thought it was a good idea? It, the same, the same gay person that wrote every piece of dialogue leading up to it. Because I literally, my note is water sports in under ten minutes? Question mark. I'll take it. Um, yeah, the guy proceeds to to go piss, and he's like overlooking the city, and he's peeing, and all of a sudden he realizes he's peeing on a random couple laying in this the beautiful sandy. <laughs> grassy knoll dirt knoll uh on the hillside and uh i don't know what they're doing there <laughs> but no that's what i say this he first of all he walks a fucking goddamn mile to to pee and there's where he pees is no different than anywhere else that's around because there's nothing it's desert so he could have literally walked two steps and pee behind the car yeah. this dude literally walks a fucking mile to go pee yes and he's peeing over this embankment and there's this like random biker couple that are just laying. They're not even on a blanket or anything. There's no bike around. They're just laying on the side of this hill in the middle of the desert. And they're very obvious. They're like five feet in front of him and he's pissing all over him. And the girl, how'd you miss them? And the guy's like, Oh, is it raining? And the girl's like, no, there's a guy pissing on us. Ugh. And they, they proceed to chase him. And Johnny's reaction is, can't you guys take a joke? Okay, so when is that I just got peed on. Now, some people wouldn't be as irritated as others. But that being said, I understand the upset. Can you imagine that that on their, um, on their like, resumes, like when they're auditioning for future film products and on that, on that resume, it says, uh, Evil Laugh, 1986, uh, character played... Uh, biker that got peed on. Like, can you imagine that being their credit? Like, <laughs> uh, you know, good for them. That's probably why they weren't in any other movies. I, I don't. <laughs> okay, so that's. I guess that's supposed to be some little bro shenanigans to introduce to the uh, to the male character. <laughs> Whew, but that's a lot to unpack in a matter of five minutes. <laughs> yeah, they start out. They start strong. 
with this film. They really reeled me in. Oh boy, yeah, dude, they really. Okay, then we get Tina and Connie. We cut to Tina and Connie, who. Uh, okay, so Tina is this blonde. <laughs> That's all I can box them. She is a blonde. Yes, she's very blonde. She's very childlike. She is the epitome of a medical student. <laughs> Are they all? They're all medical students, right? Yeah. How? What does she do? She's a brain surgeon. Like I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. The girl's a fucking moron. She is very slow and her reasoning is very off and she like it's progressively more stupid throughout the course of the film um and she's really leaning on some hard stereotypes of blondes and what they're capable of but god love her you know what she's one of the best parts of the film <laughs> and we have to we have to we have to talk about her because the actress is jody gibson who apparently you know after she did evil laugh became one of the Came the most prolific Madame in Hollywood. She was named, her nickname was Baby Doll, and she actually was Heidi Fleiss's Madame. Um, (laughs) I'm not shocked at all, to be honest. After A, seeing this performance, I'm not shocked that she quit acting in general because let's be real, it it ain't the girl's delivery of dialogue that got her cast in this film. Um, But uh, she also looks, the girl looks like she's built to fuck. Like she looks like a human Barbie doll from her hair to her tits, to her ass, to the clothing they put her in. Um, And you know what? We might as well go with a nickname Barbie doll or when was it baby doll? (laughs) Yeah, she is, she is a sight to behold and her hair, she has like little hair clips with these big blonde pigtails and, yeah, the poor lady though. She spent some time in prison and for in real life for her shenanigans as a madame, um, which is a shame because sex work. There are worse things. So you know what? I hope she's out there making her dreams come true at what probably seventy something years old. Now, yeah, and then okay. So on the flip side of that, we get Connie, who in this film is a uptight, annoying. I cannot stand Connie at all. There's something about her that is just grating. And I don't know if it's the actress's performance. It's so uneven. Um, but it's really interesting because on one hand, you had Tina played by Jody Gibson, who is like a Hollywood madame. And then on the other hand, you have Connie, who the actress is um, Kim McCarney, who actually became a hardcore porn star. <laughs> I was like, she's like a hardcore anal porn, anal porn star. Yeah. So at some point, right? Ashlyn Gear, yes, yes. Good for her. Yeah, yeah. These two girls really, you know, taking the industry by storm. But no, I have a funny story about Miss Ashlyn Gear. Uh, I don't know if I should tell it or not, but whatever. Uh, hopefully, my brother's not listening to this. But no, my my brother used to, you know, as most you know teenage boys probably did, had Hustler magazine. And one of the issues that I found, my little, you know, horny ass back then, was an uh, issue that had a centerfold spread with Miss Ashlyn Gear of Evil Laugh and Rocco Safredi, one of the hot male porn stars. So, yeah, so I, I was, I saw her naked before I saw her in Evil Laugh, I think. But no, good for her. Good for her. When you watch Evil Laugh, did you connect the 
the dots? Or like, did you un- did you know she was who she was when you watched the movie? No, no, because she looks. I mean, as a porn star, she looks a lot different. I think they tried. Yeah. They tried to make her look as frumpy as possible in this film. <laughs> Definitely, yeah. And so Tina and and Connie, their their little jeep breaks down, and they can't get it started. And Tina's ditzy ass like bangs on the dashboard and the jeep starts because that's what finds you that's in happy days because yeah, <laughs> she sounds like she's on helium yes. that movie. yeah <laughs> yeah she's she's a trip yeah so they proceed to the house uh and that's what well no actually after that we get we have to cut to the other couple that lovely couple the ones that are dressed the same <laughs> The ones wearing the same riding hats. Yeah. Uh, Betty and Sam. Betty and Sammy. Why are they wearing the same outfits? I, I don't know. I don't know. But they're, and they're pulled over on side, the side of the road in his little Mercedes. And he's talking to his dad and on a car phone from the, and it's so funny because this is like the mid eighties and he's on his car phone. So that's, that's how, you know, these are like young rich yuppie medical students because he has a big cell phone and a Mercedes and matching riding hats and matching riding hats with Betty. Who's a real delight, by the way, Betty is a complete bitch throughout the course of the film because she's right away whining about why do we have to, why do we have to give up a weekend with your, with your dad to go spend it at this house? And he's like, Oh, well, because Jerry's one of my best friends. And they keep calling, they keep calling, they keep referring to the other, and it just bothered me because it's, I don't know, it's just weird, but they keep referring to the other, the others that they're meeting as kids. Oh, do the other kids know? Bitches, you were in your mid-20s, you're not kids. Come on. One thing I really took away from this film about these two is like, I feel like they could have easily had the script um, finish and omitted these two characters <laughs> Because they serve very little purpose to the plot. And there's a like a large series of scenes in which they are just not in. Like the rest of the cast are all together, but they're just kind of off doing their thing. And he keeps talking about how like Jerry's his best friend. But overall, like Sam is kind of a horrible person. He's a dick. And uh, they they were really just two of the mo- like the least likable characters I could think of in a slasher to date. Uh, they really serve very little purpose overall. Yeah, yeah. Uh, just to add to the body count, but then does it really though? Because we'll we'll get to that. And it's through Sam. Although Sam can get it, he's kind of hot. Just saying, we find out through Sam that there was a murder. That's how we find out about a mur- there. There was a murder in this house. So somehow they know about it, but none of the other kids know about the murder. Okay. He tells Betty, and Betty's kind of like, ooh, I don't mind at all. In fact, it kind of turns me on. Like, <laughs> like she gives the complete opposite response I would expect from somebody in this situation. But okay, girl. That's because she has a riding hat on. Yeah. Okay, so then we cut to the... Now, somehow, we cut back to the house. Somehow, the delivery boy is now tied to a chair in the basement. How he got there, who the fuck knows. But he's there. And this kid... Who again, yes, they're trying to portray him as being like a kid. Has to be the stupidest fucking idiot 
victim I've ever seen. He is tied to a chair and the whole time he is thinking this is a joke. I'm not into S&M, dude. This isn't cool. The killer is coming at him with a fucking power drill and the kid is not even screaming. He's like, oh, this isn't cool. What are you doing? Yeah, and as the man like closes in and he starts to realize he's actually in danger, even then he's like, hey man, come on man, stop man. Like, it's a combination of bad dialogue, horrible acting, and a very lackluster execution. I gotta say, Troy, I understand the appeal of this film as being like entertaining in a sticky way, but up to this point, the deaths, very lackluster, very lackluster. Um, I, well, I, I just, um, I, I, you know, I, I keep expecting something big to happen. And I, I started to realize pretty quick right off the bat that like the draw to this film is not going to be the gore. The draw to this film is going to be the absurdity level, but being somebody that appreciates an absurd horror film, especially one from this era, it delivers in spades. Um, it is so irrational the whole storyline so irrational but yeah these kills are um are pretty low-key yeah it's high i mean the, the 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 appeal of this film is just the the sheer absurd entertainment value to it i i can't see that you could show this film to a teenager right now and they would probably not last five minutes uh, it's it's not for everybody but there is an an entertaining value to this film that probably goes beyond almost any slasher film from the 80s because like you're right it is all so ridiculous it's like a time capsule and these people who were making this you could you could tell that they were trying to be serious that they did not get how sticky this whole thing was that they're and i think that's a part of this film's appeals because they were taking it seriously and you I, i i with this script and these actors i don't know how you could take it <laughs> and even like like what was going on behind the scenes like yeah i think the actors are very devoted to the craft um regardless of the quality of their performances but i think it's a lot of things i think it's everything from like the sound editing like the laugh is so whenever you hear the killer's laugh because you've heard it now at a few points he laughs every time he kills and it is like uh, it just obviously like ADR'd in there, like popped right in there. And it is just so like dislocated from the rest of the film. The cinematography is pretty clunky too. Like it's, uh, especially in like the opening for the opening of the movie, I was like, wow, like the cinematography, I feel like I'm watching a home movie. Um, and not just because it's older, but because like, it's very bland. Um, later on, as the movie goes on, you get a few more, like a little more creative shots, but overall compared to some of the other films we've seen from this era, all technical aspects of this film are kind of kind of lacking. Um, but you're right. It makes up for it in sheer absurdity. And uh, boy, does it deliver. Okay, so the poor delivery boy is killed. And now the guys arrive. And right away, they are drawn to voices that are coming from the closet. And it's just these, this, it's just this voice that's just saying the most random stuff. Like, get out, get out. You, you hurt me. Get out. Where are you coming from? And it kind of reminds me, and it's like these little childlike voices. It kind of reminds me of that scene in Scream 2 when Phil hears the in the stall next to him at the beginning, the child-like voices just saying random shit. That's what this is. And must I say, the connections to Scream with this film 
are pretty strong. And I have to believe that Mr. Kevin Williamson saw this film um, when he did Scream. And we'll get to why. I don't know if you felt the same way or not. Um, yeah. Scream, Scream 2. Scream 2, I got some vibes as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. And mentioning the voices, there's a lot of little elements of this movie that I expected to have connections or carry over more that never really got like tied in. Maybe they did and I just missed it. We'll talk about that. But it starts here with the voices. Yeah. So there's voices and Mr. Burns shows up. Well, they open the closet. Nobody's there. You see that there's an air vent. Mr. Burns shows up and they're like, where are those? What are those voices? And Mr. Burns is like, what voices? I didn't hear. There's, and he's like, oh, well, his explanation is, oh, well, there's an air vent. Someone must be talking by the air vent and the voices are just carried over. It happens all the time. But who the fuck would be talking by the air vent? There's nobody else in the house. Who? I'm very confused. That is not an explanation that I would accept, but all right. Mr. Burns is like, okay, well, I'm going to go, you know, if you guys need anything, blah, blah, blah. And, oh, are you guys sure you're your doctors? You look like babies. No, they don't. They look like they're 50. Come on. Um, And then Mark just has this random line where he's like, oh, they call me Dr. Kildare. And just gives him a weird look. And like, what? What is? What's that mean? Is it maybe some kind of like pop culture reference from the era? I don't know. And Mr. Burns's reaction is, and again, the homoeroticism just is laid on because Mr. Burns is like, if you guys need anything, please call me. And did you catch this? Because any eyes mark up and down, like literally eyes him up and down, and he says, and I mean anything. <laughs> Mr. Burns is a blatant homosexual in a cast full of gaiety. He's, I would say, the most closeted individual of all of them, um, from everything down to his hostile beard of a wife. So, yeah, we'll get to her in a minute. That one, lest we forget. Oh, because she's out in the car right now. She's waiting out, she's waiting out in the car. This is when we're getting introduced to the lovely, and I use that word, <laughs> not loosely, Sadie, the wife of Mr. Burns. Very difficult woman. Yeah. Very difficult. Chain smoking. She looks like she's about 50, 55, haggard looking. Um, Sour puss of a face. Yeah. She's just not in a good mood. She hates the house. As we're told 50 times in this film, how much Sadie hates the house. Um, Cause then the girls show up and Mr. Burns comes out and uh, he's like, Oh, say hi to my lovely wife, Sadie. And the girls wave and Sadie waves and she's like, let's get the get out. Let's get the fuck <laughs> out of here. Go. <laughs> She's so fucking angry. <laughs> she is a she is up uh, more uptight than Mr. Burns, if that's even possible. This broad's gotta stick up her ass that no gay man could ever, ever possibly compare to. Well, now we're now we get Barney's character, who this is the well, this isn't the point because he's been annoying the whole film, but this is when he really starts to get annoying. But this is also where Barney is okay. So Barney's a huge horror fan, right? And now he's starting to worry that what's happening is reminding him of a slasher film. So he starts to tell the character, the other characters, hey, look at I, you know, something's not right here. Um, there's something going on, blah, blah, blah. And 
Very scream. Very, very scream, just like you said. It's Randy. This is Randy before Randy. Uh, you know what I mean? Randy from Scream. Very similar characters because there's even a scene later that we'll get to where Barney starts rambling off rules that you're not supposed to break in order to survive a horror film. So, again, Barney, to me, Barney's the Randy before Randy. Yeah, I see it for sure. Yeah, so anyways, then, I don't know, Mark comes out of the room and he's carrying this random lamp that supposedly fell and broke and they all look like, it's like, this is the, okay, everything that happens in this fucking movie, this is the point where these, these characters look the most scared in their entire fucking lives over a broken lamp. Forget everything that happens later. The characters right now are terrified about a broken lamp. Yes. And it's just another example of things that don't come to fruition with any real purpose or like explanation. They almost approach it early on. Like, I don't want to say a haunting, but like things mysteriously breaking and hearing voices in the hallways. Like it's approached like a different, almost like a different genre of a horror film for a little bit. It doesn't feel like a slasher um, while they're, while the kids are in the house for like a period of time. Cause you, there's a big gap of time between kills. Yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah, it's very yeah because even even uh, one of the Johnny's like, well, I hope there's I hope this place isn't haunted, and Mark's like, yes, it just fell over by itself, and then Barney has this his line because God forbid you can't have too many Friday the Thirteenth fucking references in this film because he's like, oh, well, I hope a guy in a hockey mask named Jason doesn't show up. Yes, we know Dominic, you were in Friday the Thirteenth. We don't have to have a Friday the Thirteenth reference every five fucking minutes. Okay, calm it down, calm it down, Mister. Oof. it's really like being like hey and if you like this movie check out my resume <laughs> oh and then this is when they oh god the gay the gay overtones because they're like the guys are like oh well we're gonna go skinny dipping later and you know all the girls are gonna they're gonna mark's like oh all the girls are gonna want me and, and uh, like we're gonna have a big orgy at one yeah point. And they literally say we're gonna have an orgy yeah and barney's like oh well why do you think that and this is again mark walks up to him puts his hands on his shoulders seductively, looks in his eyes and says, Barney, if you were a girl, who wouldn't you want me? And he's like, isn't Barney like, well, sure. He says yes, right? <laughs> no, I think that's what he wants to say, but he's trying to play it straight and says, oh, well, if I was a girl, I'd be a lesbian. I'd be a lesbian, that's right. No, no. <laughs> That's that's right. No, but yeah, he's looking him dead in the eyes <laughs> with a smile on his face, licking his lips. He's like, mm, yeah, your 47-year-old flesh. Because <laughs> Barney looks, out of all of them, Barney is the most haggard of all of the men. Barney looks like fucking, Bar- Barney looks like, I'm just going to, Barney looks like somebody that would be named Barney. <laughs> Barney looks like the Sunny Latiera from Greece equivalent to this film but you know you know sunny is like he like 53 <laughs> he's got like he's got like stubble like this guy is in the same boat this man looks like he could have spawned at least four children at this point and um, he's the only one he's the only one that doesn't take his shirt off doesn't show any skin and yeah because he'd be covered with a blanket of dark fur i'm sure uh and then this is uh barney uh barney sees okay so it's t- <laughs> There's so many inconsistencies with the character of Barney that are just, they, they did not, the characterization with Barney is very problematic because it's not consistent at all. 
as we will get to at the end of the film. So Barney is supposedly terrified now because he's starting to think that the place is haunted, that they're going to be stalked. But he, and he sees a heart in a bowl on the counter. And freshly cut. Right. <laughs> like it, it is like bloody. Of all the things that have, you've experienced so far in the film, I would think finding a heart on the counter would be the one that would be like, okay, we get it. We got to get the fuck out of here. Instead, instead, Barney's like, oh, there's a fresh heart. I better start cooking dinner. <laughs> I do have that exact same note. Where like a fresh heart for dinner, delicious. Like who is even going to see a heart and think, hmm, that's what we're having tonight. They keep trying to, and this is what I said earlier. Like they keep trying to play into this about the monkey brains. He's like, they like, oh, he really likes to cook really unique food for us. I'm sorry. I don't care who you are. If I see a fresh heart, there's no way I'm going to say that's what I want to eat. But they all seem fine with it, especially Barney. He's like, I've handled plenty of hearts in my days as a culinary expert, or so it seems. Um, And at this time, the same thing that's kind of going on here is like the girls have come into play. They've arrived at the house. I do want to acknowledge that when you said inconsistencies with Connie's character, her dialogue with Barney at this point, very like sexual and flirtatious. And like, Connie's, listen, you can play it as demure as you like. A whore is a whore. And Connie is out for all that dick. She's flirting with everybody. She's flirting with Barney. She ends up flirting with Mark. She's flirting with uh, Johnny. Is that his name? The other guy is Johnny, right? She's, she's out to cheat on her fiancé, Jerry. And you can't convince me otherwise. No, well, I... I... Have, we we saw Jerry. I don't blame her. Um, yeah, and she tries to play it off like she's the good girl, and and it's kind of funny you say that because Tina is kind of portrayed in the movie as the slut, but she's not because the only guy that Tina wants to fuck through the entire film is Mark, and she does fuck him, but she also is like, you don't think I'm a whore, do you? Like. <laughs> <laughs> and Connie, you're right. Is Connie is flirting with everybody because yeah, there's a scene where they're like, "Oh, where's Jerry?" And Barney comes in and's like, "Jerry's gay." Out of the blue, and we're like, "Barney, no, that's you." But whatever, bless your heart, you poor gay boy. And because then Connie's like, "Well, why? Why do you think my future husband's gay?" And Barney's like, "Well, because all you hot women are here, and he's not here, and I, he's and I'm not sleeping in J- Jerry's room because he's hot for my body." And this is when Connie, literally, this whore, sits next to him, starts caressing him. And it's like, oh, well, you have a pretty body, Barney. And Jerry better watch out because if anything happens to Jerry, I'm all with you. What a harlot. What a fucking harlot. And like, and at this point, you know, they're all kind of like, where's Jerry? Where's Jerry? So it's not like he's even there. So she's, she knows what she's doing. She knows what she's doing behind his back. She's a whore. And you can't convince me otherwise. You want some Barney dick. I do not understand why. Because the man, he looks kind of like a caveman. I mean, to be honest, he is not the most attractive guy in the film. Um, But, you know, everyone's got their type, I guess. And then for some reason, we cut to a scene with Betty and Sammy up in their room talking about how they're going to get kinky later. And then it just cuts because... They're second. Nobody cares about Betty's. They're secondary. They, like you said, they have no real purpose in this film at all, um, really, uh, except 
you know, there's a scene coming up at the dinner that is a little interesting, I think, but otherwise they're disposable. They should have just stayed home. They should have just went to fucking Sammy's dad's place for the weekend. So we don't have to deal with them. (sighs) Okay. (laughs) Now we are going to get to this. Probably the best scene in the film. It's when everyone has changed into little short shorts. Oh my Lord. The shortest of shorts. Except Connie, who is wearing this hideous blue jumpsuit it's high ride denim i mean we're talking like high pants yeah and we get introduced or we don't get introduced we get blessed with a cleaning montage we get introduced to the outline of uh, uh mark's penis that's what we get introduced to because let me tell you though them shorts leave nothing to the imagination um so that's one thing we get introduced to and that does carry through the rest of the film because his pants or shorts are so fucking tight. I can't imagine how he was getting circulation down there. At least they had the common sense to put the hottest guy in the... In the shortest shorts. Because Mark, I'm sorry, even even today, watching the... He can, he can get... He, Mark is a oddie. Very. And this cleaning montage, let me just say, we're introduced to the second song of the movie, uh, which is... You know, I said the last one was the worst, but, I, you know, I'm going to bite my tongue on that. I'm going to hold because uh, party all night long, party the whole night long is... Get it right, Roger. It is like a light, cheerful... Like, I, what channel would you play this song on? Like, what mainstream audience are they going for with this one? Are people in their like, late 20s, early 30s listing to party the whole night long because it sounds like something you'd hear on like a children's cleanup cassette. Like they, they actually own the cassette. So that, yeah, they sure fucking play it a lot because they listen to it multiple times throughout the course of the film. They know every fucking word they're shaking their asses in the camera and really enjoying it. They seem to be big fans of this movie or of this song. We get, we get some ass shaking, uh, a close up of everyone's ass shaking to various degrees of shake. <laughs> I'm trying to think who has the best ass shake. I don't know. Maybe Tina. Tina's getting it. Oh, she's in them like low denim shorts. She's she knows what she's doing. But yeah, I mean, they seem to really be big fans of the song, and they're cleaning. They're smiling. They're enjoying it. They're cleaning in rhythm. They're like looking at each other and nodding in support. But can I mention this? What the fuck are they cleaning? They're cleaning. Why are they are doing nothing? They're wiping down a corner of the wall. And then fucking idiot Johnny is dusting a couch cover. He hasn't even taken the cover off the couch. You're dusting the couch cover, you dumb motherfucker. You're supposed to take the cover off. Yeah, they're like lightly polishing counters. They're like doing so little in the great, like overall in the great scheme of things. Like the the, the, the cast in this film, they are not selling it to me that they are supposed to be medical students. They are not the brightest bulbs. But they sure fucking love to clean. Well, and they sure love to ride down the banister because we have to get a shot of every single one of them riding down the banister. And they're da- literally, they just, they throw their cleaning utensils and they just start dancing to this song that they all seem to enjoy. And you get Mark and Connie doing like this whole figure skating type move where he lifts her up in the air and is like spinning her around. I feel like if I were filming that sequence, I, I don't care what era it is. If I was filming that sequence, that would be the point where I'd start questioning things about 
my career and about the route that this f- specific film was going um, because it does not seem to fit any uh, any other aspect of the movie thus far. The tone of the film, I don't know what they were going for. Am I happy it's there for my own personal pleasure? Absolutely. Is it really helping this movie as a piece of horror cinema? No. It's the tone of this movie, let's be honest, it's all over the place. It's all over the place. Yeah. But at, so that the wonderful cleaning montage, Mark as, he, Mark, as Mark is cleaning the fireplace, he finds a cassette and he puts the cassette in, he, ta- fi- he takes, he has the brains to take that fucking partying all night long cassette out, which it's a cassette, but is it, it must be the only song on the entire cassette, I guess. Because it does get put back in and is played again later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So someone happens to notice that Jerry's car is now gone because it's been there the whole time. They're just like, oh, well, maybe he's in a different part of the house and he can't see it. How fucking big is this house? You think Jerry's in this house and he just doesn't know you're here. When you're making noise, you're singing along to a song, but Jerry, oh, he must be in another part of the house. Well, it's a big enough of a shock that they all Scooby-Doo style run out of the room in unison. And it leaves that cassette player there on the couch. And it is another weird cassette. It's a voice that's saying, the children are dead. The children are dead. So, okay, again. Well, first, here's my th- here's the thing. First of all, we're, we're ripping off movies left and right at this point. Very Black Christmassy kind of moment. Um, and then there's the whole aspect of this cassette, like, it gets brought up again, like, a little bit, but it has no real tie-in or relevance to the greater purpose of the film. It just exists, but it's not, you don't, it's not, like, delved into no, because who is who is is it was it supposed to be? Well, we'll get to the whole character, but is it supposed to be the killer? The character did he record himself just screaming over and over? The children are dead because that's all the cassette says. The children in various weird voices. The children are dead. The children are dead. And you hear like the children in the background. Yeah, but it's never really approached again. No, it's unsettling. It actually is kind of creepy, but. Um, it's just, it just doesn't make any sense. And of course they miss it because um, they're outside looking at, for Jerry's car, which is not there. Yeah. And they're all like, well, maybe he went to town, blah, blah, blah. <sighs> I don't know. They're, these are these, how these are medical students. God, God only knows because these are the dumbest characters in the entire history of film. Um, and then all of a sudden we get Mark and Tina who are making out and they're getting ready to go into a bedroom. And all of a sudden we get a shot of a knife come through the bed, like stab through the bed. Yeah. It's a knife and it's like, Oh, okay. Somebody just stabbed through the bed. This is when Tina, before she, you know, is talking, when she's talking to Mark, they're in the bedroom and she's like, I don't want you to think I'm a slut. And he's like, oh, I don't. And then she proceeds to like strip and pull his cock out, like right away. Yeah. The dialogue here is, first of all, it's blatantly ADR'd. It's, it's obviously dubbed over. But like, you have like some real quality lines. Like, I feel like I'm opening a Christmas present. And, oh, Mark, those stories are true. Like, it is so uncomfortable like as if the seat itself already wasn't somewhat uncomfortable like the dub dialogue is very awkward uh and so she's like pulling his pants off she gets him down to his briefs which don't look that bad and then she pulls those off too and he rolls right on top of her and somehow they don't feel 
the hole beside them. That's why she, that's when she says she pulls down his little, well, she takes off his shorts, his short shorts, how she didn't have to use a can opener to get them off. I don't know, but she, she has to cut them off. They're like Olivia Newton-John and again, a grease reference when she got sewn into them pants, they're so tight, but somehow she manages to, I don't know, oil him and slide them off of his body. Yeah. And he's wearing these little black bikinis, and that's when she pulls him out. Oh, those stories are true. So apparently he has a big he has a big dick, apparently. That's that's the word around campus about Mark. He has a big old dick. I don't mind that. No, me neither. Let's see. But he does get down, he gets butt naked. He does get butt naked. He's on top of her. You see his ass gyrating. And also you see a hand come up from the bed, the hole in the bed, and start caressing Mark's ass for like 15 minutes. Like, and when you say caressing, you mean like a hearty bear grip because it is clutching that sheet. It's going up the crack and everything for 15 minutes. Literally, this hand is just, whoo, let's, whoo, let's touch it. And uh, let me say, Mark don't seem to mind it one bit. In fact, he's, he's giggling and he's like, oh, is that what you also, is that what Johnny used to like? He liked to, uh, you like it when he played with your butt or you played with his butt. He's like teasing around with, um, with Tina, and she's like, what are you talking about? I'm not playing with your butt. And one thing I have to acknowledge is Tina's gripping him with her arm, like, around your shoulder. So unless she's a mysterious third arm, that wouldn't make sense. That wouldn't make sense. Where is this? I mean, he, I would know very quickly that somebody else was grabbing my butt. But then, again, not the sharpest tools in the shed. Both of, yeah, both of her hands are around him, and there's a hand grabbing his butt. He, yeah, whatever. And, and he's loving it. Who is it? Who who's grabbing his ass? Who could it be? It's homoerotic Barney, who is somehow playing a joke. And apparently, the joke here was that he wanted to grab Tina's butt. Wink, wink. But we all know all too well at this point what his real goal was was to caress his buddy's butt, and he got it. Yeah, he come. He's under the bed, and he's like, he's like, <laughs> and. Yeah, so they, it's Barney. Barney just spent 15 minutes caressing Mark's ass. Everyone rushes into the bedroom, and this is when Johnny sees that Mark and Tina are fucking, and apparently there's some side story where Tina and Johnny just broke up. I don't know. Drama. I'm just thinking about this, because this is, again, Barney, this Barney character is so inconsistent, because he is supposed to be, like, so worried about, like, all everything that's going on and the potential of this house being haunted or a killer showing, but he's playing these jokes like it's nothing. And it just doesn't jive because it doesn't fit with the character. Like you're, you have this character who is supposedly this huge scaredy cat and is like worried about everything, but he's willing to jab a knife through a mattress ruining a perfectly good mattress, by the way. Yeah. I would be livid if I found out that this guy burrowed a hole through a full mattress in this house that I do not own um, or that is, you know, is being rented. I'm, I would demand that Barney rec- uh, compensate us right away for the cost of the mattress to avoid any issues or penalties because that's problematic. Well, remember, they don't know they're going to buy the house yet. This is a test drive. <laughs> Which is even more problematic because they may, if they don't keep the house and that bed is just ruined. Just cover it with some sheets. Who do? Um, <laughs> You got a glory hole built in. Right, right. Okay, so now they are eating dinner, and their dinner consists of a breaded calf's heart. And my first question is, how does that feed eight people? Oh, God, that's a good point. 
<laughs> because they have it and they're like cutting pieces off. And I'm like, you have eight people and the heart is no bigger than, you know, I mean, we know how big a heart is. It's not that big. So how are you eating? How is this feeding? Eight yeah. Pieces? Well, they give it, they give a piece of it to Johnny. Mark gives a piece of it to Johnny. He's like, try it. It's actually pretty good. It tastes like chewy chicken. Um, and Johnny tries it. He loves it. He's like, give me another piece. And then Mark proceeds to like cut off like a, like a very small piece of it. And he's like, now, now save some of it for Jerry when he gets back. I'm like, that's not a full portion of food. There's, there's very little to go around. <laughs> it's just ridiculous. And this is when Sammy makes an announcement that he is going to be interning at the same hospital as Jerry and Connie. And this upsets Johnny because apparently Johnny has a friend who's been trying to get into the same hospital. And there's this whole scene where I think it's probably one of the more, I guess, um, deep scenes in the film. And it actually kind of works because it's, they're trying to make a little bit of a statement about how people with money can get ahead and people, it doesn't matter if you're really a good doctor, all that matters is you, you have money to get ahead. And yeah, it's kind of interesting. I, I kind of dug this little back and forth because you can tell. But it doesn't last long. <laughs> no, it doesn't. But you can tell the characters are getting uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, and they're like, I'm going to take you outside and beat you up. And nothing comes from it. But there are threats made. No, because, yeah, Connie's like, shut up. We're all friends. Really bringing people together, that one, Connie, which he's not whoring herself behind her boyfriend's back. Yeah. And Mark is like loving these mashed potatoes he's eating. I need some more mashed potatoes. And we find out it's not mashed potatoes. It's Rocky Mountain Oysters. (laughs) Is that how Rocky Mountain Oysters are prepared? A la a mash? I did not think so. I mean, I guess if the joke lands, it lands. But like that, I... I thought Rocky Mountain oysters would be just a full-on bull testicle that you cut into more like, um, oh, I don't know, more like maybe a, a, a scallop. They're not mashed. Yeah, I was, I, you, you would never, unless you're an idiot, which apparently these characters are, you could never mistake a Rocky Mountain oyster for a mashed potato. It just, there's no comparison. And just think, these are the people that are going to be performing open heart surgeries and fixing ligaments doing all kinds of important things it's funny because all throughout the film we we they all have to say there's there's some there's some point in this film where an occasion arises where each of them can say what they specialize in that's another thing i think is hilarious like they're just they all have to say they specialize in because sammy's a ear throat and mouth doctor and we find out connie is a dermatologist and but these whole, like, I mean, the fact that they are all med students, really, aside from being mentioned, has no relevance either. Like, other than, like, that lotion sequence that comes up. Like, it's not like, it's not like you're even ever in a hospital. There's nothing at all associated with their education. They're just at a house. They're at a house flipping it. They're at a house cleaning, lightly cleaning it. They're, they're being med students has nothing to do with anything. So yeah, no. just one more thing that is like a weird plot point that's not really followed through or touched on enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you don't need to be a med student to open a, a nursery. I mean, just, yeah, it doesn't make any sense. Oh, and this is when a door, the doorbell rings and they all go. And this is when we are introduced to another character that is just uh, unforgettable. And it is... Ugh. 
God. <laughs> it's it's Chief Cash, who is about a, this old 700-pound guy. Um, he is literally the most incompetent-looking individual they could possibly get their hands on. And I don't know if they were trying to make a joke of it or, like, uh, genuinely were seriously like, and here is Chief Cash, this overweight, bumbling individual who looks like he's straight out of, a, uh, like, a... I don't know, a, a pedophile listing or something with his big yellow sunglasses. But yeah, so, uh, and this man, you know, earlier, I, t- I retract my statement. I said Mr. Burns was the worst actor in the film. I'm wrong. Mr. Burns is the third worst. The second worst is the delivery boy. And the first worst is by far Chief Cash. This man, I don't know how he landed this part. Maybe he was a big producer and they're like, here's your compensation. You get a role in the movie. And he's like, oh boy, I've always wanted to be in a movie. Uh, You can't act his way out of a paper bag. And it's almost uncomfortable watching him on camera. It's he he's playing the, and this is again, where the tone of this film is all over the place because he is playing this character. Like he's out of a slapstick comedy from like the seventies or six. It's it's he's playing this character completely slapstick. Um, very comedic over the top. He even has a cigar in his between his two fingers that he keeps flip, switch flipping. Uh, like, oh, the, the timing of everything he does. Like at one point when he goes to like pull out, like he's in his car and like then he takes out the cigar and he lights it and it's just like it's so confusing the approach they took with this individual. But you know, I digress. He, he's basically there to look for the delivery boy. And this is where we get the awkward dialogue that where they're pretending that this delivery boy is like 14 years old. His parents are worried sick. He, he, his, his mother, he's not home for dinner. His mother wants him. He said that he was going to fly off to Britain and become a secret agent. Don't they say something along the lines of that? Like, I'm like, how old is this kid? Like nine? Like, <laughs> Mama, I'm going off to Britain. I'm becoming a secret agent. Like that man had facial hair. Yeah. That man was like, he was a grown man. <laughs> what? You can't tell me otherwise. You can't, you can't convince me otherwise. I don't care what kind of dialogue you write. They're, yeah, they're really acting like he is a child. It's like, it's it's literally, it's like six o'clock in the evening. Like in their, fr- his mother's worried sick. He needs to come home. And also at this point, it's come up a few times now, but I do just need to hit this home. I need to really emphasize the fact that this is by far the horniest cast of characters I have ever seen in a movie. And that is saying quite a bit. These fuckers, all they're doing is touching each other, rubbing each other, caressing, caressing themselves, rubbing their chests, rubbing their pelvis areas. Just very sexual. Everything they're doing, it's very awkward. So they, they, they're like, no, we haven't seen him, but we'll, maybe you should go get a hold of Mr. Burns because he might know. And the, the, the chief's like, oh, Oh, yeah, that's a great idea. Really? Yeah, this man's a fucking idiot. He's, a, let's, he's just an idiot. He's very stupid. And he's surrounded by a cast of stupid people, and he makes them look intelligent. And then he waddles back to his car. <laughs> this man literally, literally does waddle. <laughs> like he, Troy is not overemphasizing anything. This man's gait <laughs> is 
I, I worry for him. <laughs> I watch this man walk and I am concerned that his health is in poor favor. Oh my God. And his clothing is like, his shirt's coming out because his gut's overhanging. Like he is just in ill form. He can barely walk. And then he gets, <laughs> he gets to his car and he can barely get in the car. Uh, it takes him like t- 10 minutes to get in the car. He's winded from getting down from the house to down the driveway. Like the guy is not, if he didn't die in this film, he wouldn't have made it much longer anyways due to a heart attack or something. He gets back to the car and he gets on a walkie talkie and he's talking with just some random guy that's in the bushes. He's just... <laughs> This is what I'm saying. With those ass, the, the plot points, they come and they go. It's like it's like Dorothy says in the Wizard of Oz, we're like, people come and go here so quickly. Like <laughs> who the fuck is this guy? And this guy, he's he's in it briefly, but he is making the most of his time oh. on camera. He's doing <laughs> He's chewing the scenery. He's in the bushes. He's like, oh, what do I do, Chief? What do I do? Oh, I'll kill him. I'll kill him. <laughs> Who is this man? Why are they? <laughs> I don't know. I he, he, I think he's somebody that wants to be a police officer because he's like I've I've been all I've wanted to do is be a police officer and I've been by your side for all this time. So he's not even a real police officer. <laughs> he has no right to be on this property. He has no right. And the 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 the, the chief is like, well, don't you go doing anything silly there, Jimmy. Let me handle it. <laughs> The chief technically should remove the man from the premises because he's not a police officer, but he's fine with it. He's walking. He, apparently the man is a walkie talkie. So he's in on the gig. But this guy, I'm concerned that this is the kind of character who will run in and shoot before actually asking questions. Like one of these kids is going to die because of this man's ill mistake. Kind of like Connie does at the end of the movie. But we'll get to that. We'll get back to that. We'll get, <laughs> don't go spoiling anything ahead of, ahead of time. <laughs> Okay, so yes, this random character in the bushes is talking to the chief <laughs> on the walkie-talkie, and the chief is getting really like ups, up, really mad at him, like really aggressively. Well, understandably so. The guy is. If we thought the chief was stupid, this man can barely get a sentence out of his mouth. The chief is the one that gave the guy a walkie-talkie and told him to look out for <laughs> the premises. Why are you getting mad at this poor guy? He's just doing what you told him. And he and but then the guy then you get this whole scene where uh, he's like, well, okay, but before I go, who's that guy in the back seat with you? And he's like, I'm the one in the car. Yeah, I'm the only one. No, there's somebody in the back seat, and the chief's like, no, I'm the only one. You hear this gurgling. <laughs> and 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 so uh, the guy, the bumbling idiot number two, while uh, rushes over to the vehicle. And you, I will say, like, if you're going to get any, like, gore effect at all or anything, it's this one. You have uh, the reveal of the chief with his throat cut. And there is blood, like, spewing out of it. At least there's something. It looks pretty okay. And then Jimmy's like, oh, you're dead. You're dead. I think his name is Jimmy. I just called him Jimmy. I don't know. He looks like a Jimmy to me. I don't know. Uh, Yeah, that sounds a lot about right, considering the names of the rest of the characters. So, and then... The, the killer comes up behind him and ha- does the evil laugh and then stabs him and literally lifts this guy five feet off the ground. Which, which uh, we'll get to that later too. 
God, you know, now like revisiting this whole film and like knowing how it ends, there's a lot, there's a lot of loose strings. <laughs> there's a lot of them. Now we get back to the house and Connie is telling the story of Martin. And this is when Sammy and Betty decide to leave because of course they do, because they are worthless. Um, they don't even want to stick around and hear the story. Well, again, feeling fo- following through with how horny these people are. They're like, we're going to go have sex. Like, I mean, they aren't even subtle about it. And everyone else is like, you two go have fun. And then they they are there because now we get Sammy and, and Betty are in the bedroom and, Sam, and Betty's tied to the bed. And Sammy and his kick-ass body is in his little black, you know, uh, Speedos. And a spiked, like, dominatrix collar. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's no hot water, and Sammy's like, I'm going to call that realtor and get him here right now. You've got to be aggressive. And apparently that turns Betty on because she's like, oh, oh I'm so horny for you now. You get, you, you're so manly when you get aggressive. Okay. Um, but he does call the realtor because now we get the scene with Sadie in bed smoking her cigarette. And <laughs> Burns is apparently trying to eat her out. Because he pops up from the sheets. And she's having nothing to do with it. She is having nothing to do with it. And he is like... She is disgusted by him. He is now talking like he is a six-year-old boy. Please, please, honey bun. I'm so horny. And she's like, get off of me. (laughs) She's so cruel to him. (laughs) But then, and here's one moment I have a little bit of issue with personal issue uh, then mr burns proceeds to threaten his wife with rape and i was not really prepared for that but at least she takes it as a joke because it, uh, she likes isn't phased by it but uh he is like if you're not going to give it to me i'll take it from you and i'm like do you mean you're gonna rape this woman because that's a problem He's going to rape. Well, he, he, and he gets aggressive. He's like, listen, bitch, a man has needs and I'm going to get what I want. And he got, gets on top of her. Uh, and she's laughing there for a minute, but there's that split second right before the phone rings that you see that she thinks she, she knows that she's about to get raped, but the phone rings. <laughs> they kind of like nothing just happened. <laughs> just another raping. <laughs> yes. They act like nothing happened. He's like, Oh, yeah. (laughs) No, but he even says, saved by the bell. Because you have to answer the phone, right? I mean, if you're a rapist, a phone call is going to stop you, right? Right. At least they have terms that they agree to here. Um, But yeah, he answers the phone and it's It's Sam who does demand that he come to the house and turn their hot water on. Much like someone who's renting out a property would do. Not necessarily someone who's trying to sell a house, but okay, whatever. We'll go with it. Yep. And then we get Sadie again, telling us how she thinks the house is creepy. I don't know why you're going there. I wouldn't go there. It's creepy. Okay. And then she's like, be careful. And he's like, give me a kiss. And she kisses him on the forehead as though he didn't just threaten her with rape. So it's very confusing. So now we are back to the house and we are full into Connie's story about the history of this house. The history of this house is that it was a foster home, the oddest looking foster home I've ever seen in my life. But hey, it was a foster home. And we had a character of Mark Martin who was hired to be a caretaker. He was an 18 year old 
kid apparently. And the kids that were there at the foster home falsely, falsely accused Martin of rape or a molestation. Okay. And before the truth was revealed that the kids were lying, Martin's father hung himself. And so Martin gets his revenge by going back to the foster home one night and literally killing all of the children, slitting their throats and stabbing them to death. Before we get this little pit tidbit that is the most confusing aspect of this entire film, because apparently after he killed the foster, all the kids, he burned the house to the fucking ground. This story has more layers to it than a fucking onion. The, they literally have to cut away and then cut back. She's still in the midst of the story. Then they cut away again, and then she's like concluding it. Like this story is a novella. It is epic, and it keeps building over the course of the entire movie. This story has more chapters to it. It's very long. But the film, but the house looks pretty damn good for being burnt to the fucking ground. Yeah. Well. I mean, maybe that's why it's such like a modern Art Deco style or whatever you would call that, the Flintstone style of architecture that it is. Maybe it was a complete rebuild. We don't know. Maybe even in the ashes, in the ashes from the ashes of the building was this new house that grew, that was built. <laughs> and that's where they're residing right now. But the history is within the soil of, the, of this land. I don't know. None of it makes any sense. No, no, because... I thought, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm overthinking it because like when the, because remember when the, when chief cash was in the house, he's like, Oh, I don't think I, I don't, I never thought I'd be in this house again. So apparently it's the same house. I, I don't know, but we get the tidbit. Don't think too hard, Troy. Cause you're going to give yourself a fucking aneurysm. I know. I just like the house burnt to the fucking ground, but you're all in it and it looks perfectly fine. Okay. Whatever. Next. And something to acknowledge is whenever Connie goes into one of these trances, when she, she she tells these stories and she goes into like a, like a trance where she's like looking off into the dis almost into the camera and she's like telling the story of Martin and the children that he killed like it is a lot it, she's given us a lot to work with here. <laughs> Yeah. And so now the realtor is on his way and he's jamming out to his car to Beethoven, I guess. Some version of Beethoven, that race song. And he is jamming out like he is listening to WAP. Let me tell you. He is- the man is on cocaine. It's got to be what it is because he is just headbanging to Beethoven. <laughs> okay. And then this is, okay, this is when Barney becomes fucking unbearable because after after Connie tells the story, Barney goes into full fucking panic mode, wants to get out of the house, is like obnoxious about it, like wants every wants people to drop what they're doing and drive him into town immediately. And people are like, fuck you, Barney, grow up. And I'm like, Barney, you are being fucking annoying. You're a 30-year-old man. You're a grown man with six kids. Calm down. He is. And I, I, I love that they're all like, oh, fuck you, grow up. And they're just like, you know, and Tina has a brilliant line where she's like, I'm not going to let any scary story stop me. Give me some sandpaper and lead me to the nursery. What? The girl's determined. You know, she's dumb, but she's sweet. Well, what are you going to do with sandpaper in the nursery, Tina? I want to know. 
she literally like, cuts over to Tina. She's full on sanding every 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 single like panel of wood and re varnishing it. <laughs> like the girl's actually like a skilled carpenter. <laughs> I guess since the house burned down, you got to sand off all of the you know. She's like, I'll sand off the wood in this house and varnish all of it. It's gonna look great. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so then we get back to Sammy, uh, who is on top of Betty, and he's like trying to do some dominatrix shit. He has a whip and everything. He's tied the bitch down to the bed, and he's. And this he, is what he's wearing that choker, and it is again very gay. It is very gay, but you know he's he's a good. Oh, he's dude. rocking he's good, it. He's rocking that yeah, speedo he's, too. He's rocking everything. Uh, he's given he right here. He's given. I think he's given Mark a little bit of run for his money because I didn't. I didn't think I didn't think the character of Sammy was attractive, or the actor was attractive at all until it comes to this scene. I didn't yeah, because he, he took his clothing off, and then you saw his body, and you're like, "Oh, you could brown bag the face. That body's kicking." So he gags her, which consists of like the thinnest piece of material across her mouth, and you would think the way she acts and the way she can't talk all of a sudden that he literally duct taped her mouth shut five fivefold because she literally it's like a little strip of fabric in her mouth, and she's like acting like she. She sounds like one of the teachers from Charlie Brown. Yes. And I'm like, you can talk with that in your mouth. Quit it. Um, And he's trying to put whipped cream on her and he he runs out and he's like, oh, well, there's some more in the kitchen. How? How is there whipped cream in the kitchen? This house was empty. Well, how is there more, more than one can of whipped cream in the kitchen? You guys are only here for a couple of days. What what do you need that much fucking whipped cream for? And also, why is it kept in the cabinet, not the fridge? I just want to acknowledge that. But he does finally go to get the whipped cream. It's not even refrigerated. No, I noticed that too. That's exactly what I put. Apparently whipped cream stays in the cabinet because he gets it out of the cabinet. And um, this is a weird scene too. It's I feel like this scene was 80 yard because this the the, the the dialogue and the voices don't mesh. With yeah. It. It's very odd because especially Bar- Sam's dialogue. Yeah. Yeah. Because they're Johnny and Mark are painting a sign that's, I guess it's going to say foster home. That's what it looks like to me. Uh, they are really just very blunt about what this place is going to be. Yeah. And Sammy's like, if anybody comes by my room, I'm going to slit their throats. Like Martin did to all the children. <laughs> okay. You tell them. Um, and, and while this is happening, uh, um, is it, uh, Betty is still tied to that bed. And uh-huh. uh, after Sam leaves, you do see like a black figure with blue gloves come into the room. And uh, it, it does appear as though Betty can't make any noise to alert people. No, she is acting literally like she has her mouth taped shut. And all that's in it is a, like a shoestring. Like, and she's acting like she can't talk. She can't scream. She can't do anything. She's laying there helpless. Um, and, oh, Mark, after Sammy Lee's, Mark's like, oh, you know, we're all going to go skinny dipping tonight at midnight, and I'm going to get Tina. They're bent on skinny dipping. Yeah, I'm going to get Tina, and you should go after Connie. And Johnny's like, well, Connie's with uh, Jerry. And Mark's like, well, no, nobody's with anybody until you're married. Mark's a real fucking asshole. I just got to point this out. Like some of the dialogue that he has with characters just makes him out to be a real fucking dick. He is a dick because he's like, oh, well, you know how you're going to get Connie all hot and bothered, right? And, and Johnny's like, wow. He's like, start rubbing yourself. Just rub yourself all yeah. over. 
rub your chest, rub your arms, rub your butt, and it's going to get her so hot. Just rub it. Gay. That's so gay. I mean, these, these guys have a very strange relationship. The things they talk about, real weird. So Sammy's back in the room, and he has his whipped cream, and of course Betty's laying there, and the killer, he's, try, he's trying to spray her with whipped cream, and the killer comes up behind, behind them, and Betty sees the killer, and again, the bitch is not doing anything. She's just, she, she's like, <laughs> she's literally just moaning in the most <laughs> unamused way possible. And understandably, understandably, Sam, Sam's like, oh, she thinks it's erotic. She loves it. I love it when you make these sounds for me because they just sound like soft, subtle moans, not screams of terror as they should be. He's proceeded to be chopped in the head with a machete and blood sprays all over Betty. And, and that's all you get. That's all you get. All you get is blood spraying on Betty's face. And then we never find out what happens to her. No, no, at all. She's probably still tied up in that bed. And what a shame because there is so much potential. I mean, she's tied up. So many things could have happened. You could have done so many things to her. We do not. We literally do not find out what happens to her at all. She's never Um, seen again. Never. I'm assuming we're supposed to think she got killed. Okay. So this is when, and this is, oh God, I don't understand. (laughs) There's so much I don't understand, Roger. Um, this is when we get we get Connie and Tina. Okay, can we mention now now these characters change clothes more than any fucking movie in history. They are in different outfits every fucking scene and it's the same night. It's a span. It's over the course of one day. It's over the course of one day. Every fucking scene they're in different outfits. I mean the wardrobe person it had had a quite the task ahead of them and they saw to it. I'll say that. Whoever costumed this movie, they clearly had extra pieces on hand because they made sure all of it got worn. I do also want to acknowledge that we are 50 minutes in and it is the first relatively major character to have died. A lot of little side characters have died. I don't consider Jerry a major character because he's only in it for like three minutes collectively. But aside from that, we just lost the first of like the core leads and it is 50 minutes into the film. So now Tina and Connie in brand new outfits are back in the nursery and they're talking about like, well, this is when you get the fact that Connie and Jerry's whole intention is to turn this, open this up and turn it into a foster home. And you also get a reprise of party the whole night long in this scene. And the volume of that song has progressively gotten louder over the course of the film. Tina's like, Oh, well, is it going to be children? I wouldn't mind it being, being in a home with 17-year-old boys. Tina, you are 40 years old. That's illegal. Yeah. They, they are, they, that is illegal, that statutory rape. God, these, they won't fuck anything. I'm shocked they don't start fucking riding that goddamn uh, baby carriage they're, they're polishing down or whatever the fuck it is. And, the, the way, and Tina's like, I hate children. I just want 17-year-old boys. And now we get Connie going into another trance. She's basically possessed by, I'm guessing by the voices in the house. Because she now proceeds to retell the story of that night. And she has, she knows every fucking detail. Was she there is what I wanted to She Was she there? Because she knows every fucking detail. There was, there were four girls and two boys and the blankets were over them and they had blue blankets and pink blankets and 
uh, she recounts every fucking detail. The girl gets real creepy at this point. Like, I don't know where they're going with this. She practiced that monologue. She knew that she was going to be telling that story. Why? But why is she saying it? So are we supposed to maybe, is this supposed to be like a scene that's supposed to be like, oh, well, maybe Connie's the killer? I mean, I, I don't know, but it, no wonder Barney wants to basically fucking shit his pants at this point being in the house, considering how elaborate this story is and the way these children were executed and how their throats were cut and they were hung upside down and drained their blood. Like it's so it's so elaborate. It's so this killer like had too much fucking time on his hands because he, like it's so much. It's so much. And then she gets yeah, she's just it's so weird because after she tells the story, she gets like mad because Tina actually calls Martin Marty instead of Martin. And she's like, it's Martin. Like, Oh, what are your problem? Connie, calm down, girl. Yeah. It's just one of the many strange plot points. That's not really ever followed through on. Like you get these weird moments with Connie and then she just kind of falls back into like the, like lead girl role. Again, yeah. You, you know, yeah, this, this, yeah, this was a very odd character point for Connie. I don't know what they were trying to pull here, but I don't know. But bless, bless the scene because they, it leads into the pool and we get Mark, Mark Speedo. We get Mark's little Speedo. Uh, he is wearing a Speedo, a rainbow Speedo, I may point out. It has a rainbow on it. That's not very subtle, is it? Not at all. And I would wear that Speedo today. Let me tell you. It's quite fashionable, all wearing, things considered. He is wearing a uh, hot, tight Speedo, whereas Johnny is literally wearing a tent as shorts. Yes. Yes. And which is unfair because Johnny's not an unattractive guy and his body looking pretty good, but they're kind of playing him off as like the, the less attractive of the two. I mean, and they're really not given a lot to work with that poor guy with his, with his rash issue. <laughs> these are the, these are like the frumpiest oversized shorts I've ever seen on a person. I'm like, why are you putting him in that? Come on. He deserves a little bit better for that. Anyways, so Byrne shows up now to fix the hot water and Barney's like bagging him. Bar- Barney now has a baseball bat. Where are they finding all this stuff in this house? Because he has a baseball bat. He also has a suitcase, which they were driving like the tiniest little Mustang at the beginning. And you never see a scene of any of them bringing in luggage or anything. But now Barney has this massive six foot tall suitcase. And it's stuck to the brim. It's literally like, it looks like it's about to bust open the suitcase. I don't know what all he's bringing with him from the house. But uh, I, I have no idea why for a weekend adventure he would bring such a full suitcase. No, me neither. So Burns agrees to drive Barney back into town, but first he has to go down to the basement and fix the water. So he goes down to the basement and is quickly dispatched. He is murdered and he is stabbed with a machete through his crotch. And then it comes out his ass. Like, I mean, it's like, it is... It, and again, is it exactly as, as graphic as it could have been? No. None of the kills in this are really anything great. But at least they, you know, stabbed him through his crotch. And he, I like his, I don't like his rap, but his reaction is funny because all the actors, he's, he's like, ow, ow. <laughs> well, that guy's performance from beginning to end was a little, a little more understated than it needed to be. No, no, no. <laughs> I use that word loosely. Um, no, but um, yeah, no, it really was just more of a lackluster death with some awful audio. Um, 
which seems to be an issue plaguing this film. Some of the dubbing in this movie is just really, really off. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know. So back at the pool, this is, see, Mark is just being a total asshole because he knows what he's doing. And now this is when he gets Connie aside and he's like, hey, Connie, you're a dermatologist. That's your specialty. Will you please pay attention to Johnny because he has a rash. Um, and so poor Johnny's just trying to get laid and he goes up to Connie and it's like, she's in the pool and he's next to her. And he's like, this is really awkward because these characters apparently have been friends for a long time, right? They say four years. Yeah. They've been friends. This scene kind of plays off. Like this is the first time these characters have ever met. Did you get that vibe? Cause now he's up to Connie. He's like, Hey Connie, how about those Dodgers? And he's like rubbing himself. Yeah, and like the whole thing about like she's, you know, she's with Jerry. And it's so easy to convince this guy to like, not only is she with him, she's it's that's her fiance, isn't it? Yeah. And yet Johnny comes in here, Mark's like, yeah, go cheat. And Johnny's like, okay, I'll go cheat. And like, what skeezy men, what awful people. But yeah, Mark is a complete dick. And Johnny walks up to her and starts rubbing on that chest, which I don't mind that much. And you get a nice close-up shot of just his hand rubbing on his bare chest. And uh, and basically, Connie is convinced that he has a rash. Yeah, because she's like, oh, okay, I got just what you need. Come up to my room. Yeah, but it very much seems like she's taking him up there to fuck him. Yeah, yeah. And as as they are going up to his room, they run into b- poor Barney, who's like waiting for Mr. Burns. And he's like, I'm leaving. Mr. Burns is taking me. And Connie's like, oh, I don't blame you. Come on. Come on, Johnny. And they go up to his room. And now Mark and Tina are making out at the pool. And she uh, she's really out to convince people that she's not a slut. And she's like, I am a demure young lady. She's in that very fashionable green bathing suit. But she's like, you're not getting in here. And Mark is hungry for that puss. She's like, I'm saving myself. For what? Bullshit, bitch. You just fucked him. Yeah, right? So he tells her, again, this woman is in medical school, okay? this Keep that in mind. This woman is in medical school. And Mark convinces her to have sex with him by saying he has blue balls and he takes her hand and puts it on his crotch. And she's like, Oh, I guess it's true. What, how, what do blue balls even feel like? What is she feeling that she all of a sudden's like, Oh, it must be true. What if she felt it? She's like, she's like, Mark, I feel a lump. I think you have testicular cancer. <laughs> like She busts out some real intelligent dialogue. But yeah, I know these people are fucking idiots and they're assholes. Like Mark's like getting this, basically coercing this woman to take his dick and she's like i don't want to he's like yeah you do yeah i've got blue balls whatever i can say to convince you to take it he shoves her hand on it yeah so it must and she's like oh i guess it's true you do is he a wreck he must be a wreck this girl is weak for a big dick let me just say it she mentions it several times and sister i get it believe me like uh, that guy's pretty attractive. And if he's packing what it seems to be that he's packing, then I get weak too. So I don't blame you. Yeah. You get it. You get it, Tina. You and your madam ass. <laughs> <laughs> so Barney goes to the basement to look for Mr. Burns and get, proceeds to get locked in the basement by the killer. The killer just runs up the stairs and locks Barney in the basement. Yeah. A strange choice, but okay. 
Because he could, he, Barney could easily draw the attention with screams and be like, get out of the house. Like, you should just have killed him. He just sits there. Yeah. He's like, he tries the door and he's like, oh, I'm locked in. Okay. So now Connie's up in there. Connie and Johnny are up in the room and she's giving him the cream. And now he's trying to make out with her and she starts freaking out. I'm, I'm engaged. What are you doing? And, you know, and then he's like, oh, well, Mark told me he wanted me and told me to rub myself. At which point, if I were Connie, I'd be like, we're getting Mark right now and we are getting to the bottom of this. This is some bullshit. But she's pretty passive about it. And also at this point, why are people not panicking about Jerry? It is nighttime. It is nighttime. It's dark outside. She forgot about her fiance. Yeah, she, well, she's kind of a bitch too because he's like really upset and she's just laughing at him, <laughs> like hysterically laughing at him. So she gets him out of her room and then we get Mark and Tina are having sex. Are good? She's going to fuck him. Surprise, fuck surprise. Him. Okay. And, but before they fuck, she wants him to check under the bed and check all, because, you know, she doesn't want to get, she's like, I don't want to start and have to get stop, stop again. So he checks under the bed, he checks the curtain. And the second he opens the closet door, there's the killer with an ax. And he brings that ax down right away. On Mark's head. And Tina is surprisingly okay with this she thinks it's a joke what an elaborate joke you literally see the axe go in this guy's face because we get a shot of him fall back falling back and the axe is sticking out of his face and blood is gushing everywhere but she thinks it's a joke and the way they edit it like you see her look up like she's startled and then he turns around and then she's like uh this nonsense <laughs> but I want to know why does she think like it's literally you can see the axe stuck in his face. This is not a joke, Tina. I've never seen a prop axe that can pull off a full insertion into a skull. Well, then she proceeds to pull a Tatum from Scream, where she is like, "Oh, are you going to kill me now, Mister Killer? Oh, let me. Oh, sh- let me get ready. Let me. Oh, let me get my hair out of the way. It's very Tatum and Scream. I guess I'm saying like Tatum yeah. Williamson had to have seen this movie because she's like, oh." Are you going to kill me now? Oh, here, here. And she puts her throat out and the killer proceeds to start choking her and then like breaks her neck, I guess. Yeah. Yet again, in a series of lackluster kills, Tina's being, I would say, the most lackluster of all of them. All you get is like her thrusted against the bed off, like, (laughs) like she's blocked by the killer and you just hear like a very faint snap noise and like she's dead and that's all you get from it. And it's never revisited. Yep. So... These characters now are dying pretty quickly because now Johnny leaves Kim's room and he runs into the killer, full mask, and he thinks it's Barney, but the killer hits him in the head with a sledgehammer, right? Yes, and he, he drops. He drops. Keep in mind, I just, I just, I'm just pointing this out because as we get to the end of this film, this is another thing that just doesn't make a lot of sense. Keep in mind, he's upstairs, okay? Yeah. They're upstairs. Yeah. The killer proceeds to get him downstairs, carry him downstairs, ties his hands behind his back, gets the the microwave oven, (laughs) opens the microwave oven door, and puts his head in the microwave and proceeds to turn the microwave on. And he is, Johnny is laying there. I mean, he's worried, but he's, 
less worried than I would be in this situation. But at one point, he literally says, kill Connie. She's upstairs. Yes. Um, and like up to this point, his character hasn't really been portrayed as like a an unlikable character. Like he's kind of a douche like the rest of the guys. But like he literally just said, go kill her instead of me. Um, so what what happens here makes it like all the more desirable. But I don't think this is like exactly how this would happen considering what they're doing. This is done. This is a kill that's done in other films. Uh, one that comes to mind is the remake of uh, Last House on the Left, which is executed very well, but it's, uh, it just, uh, this just doesn't make sense to me in the sense of like, like uh, basically they put the guy's head into the microwave, the doors open, they turn it on. Microwaves don't work with the door open. They don't work with the door open. Like, I don't understand how they made it work. Maybe, I, I don't know. Um, but it's, it's very weird. And instead of him cooking, basically he just starts like, spraying blood out of his head <laughs> well he, he's, he's he's saying all this stuff like oh i'm not i don't feel anything i don't feel anything and then he's like i'm young again i'm young again but keep in mind this whole time all he has to do is scoot out of the microwave yeah. with his ass like just pull himself out of it there is nothing holding him in the microwave he, all he has to do is take one scoot back and he's out of the fucking microwave. but he lays there the entire time i don't get it he dies a, a miserable death. Yeah. And it doesn't make a lot of sense. But um, I mean, like I said, after that, like, that bit of dialogue with the go kill Connie, she's upstairs. I was like, good. I'm happy he's dead. The men in this movie suck. Yeah, 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 yeah. They suck. They but that is probably the most miserable death, like in the sense of like the most painful and gratuitous death in the movie. And it, But it was the one that was like the easiest to escape. I'm just going to, yeah. all you had to do is back up. Yeah. Very confusing. Especially because the killer walks away. Yeah, the killer leaves him there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The killer doesn't even watch. He just walks. So any at any time, all he would just do is scoot back, and he'd be out of the microwave. But fuck you, Johnny. You deserved it. Deserved to be cooked. Okay, so Connie wakes up because apparently she fell asleep real quick, and she's like all groggy and looking for her friends. And she goes out into the hallway, and she goes into the room that uh, Tina and Mark were, and she finds a bloody axe on the bed. And proceeds to freak out tenfold, like and grab a, a, a revolver from where? Like, what is this? Is this clue? <laughs> like, where did the gun? Where did it come from? Did she just carry a full-on revolver at, at all times? She don't strike me as the kind of dame who'd be fully armed. But you know what? Maybe she's prepared just in case of emergency. But that gun comes out of nowhere. It does. Well, she calls the police. And she actually gets through, but then it, I guess the line cuts off and she's literally walking around the house with this revolver, just like freaking out. Firing into the darkness. She, yeah. <laughs> every little noise she hears, she starts shooting. I'm like, girl, you don't even know what's going on. And you're just firing. You're going to kill all your friends. You don't know. You're going to waste all your bullets. And she goes room to room and like you, like you, you assume she just finds the gore of everything, but you, like you said earlier, you never see Betty, you never see the aftermath of what happened to a lot of these people. No, no. Well, and then, okay. So she is so scared, but the first place she goes to is the basement. Why? Why? Get your, you, you have four cars parked outside this fucking house. Get, leave. Leave. Get one of the fucking cars and go run instead she goes into the basement why 
Why, Connie? She's out to solve a she's out to solve a mystery, apparently. She's down to figure it out. She well, she finds the bloody microwave and acts like it's she doesn't even act like that doesn't phase her at all. If I found that microwave in that pool of blood, that would, would get me sprinting from that house. Because that micro I mean, the amount of blood on that floor is gratuitous, yeah. to say the least. Oh well, and then yeah, she acts like it, but the body's gone. So the killer carried the body away. This is probably God, this killer must be very strong. <laughs> Wouldn't you think this killer would be someone who's very strong? It's yeah, I would think so, right? So she's out, she's down in the basement, and she actually she goes to this, like, I guess there's a section that's sectioned off with a shower curtain or something. And she pulls a tarp, a tarp, and she pulls it back. And it's all the, it's, well, it's Jerry hanging there with his heart cut open and all of the bodies of all these, everyone's body is laying there dead. It's a a few of the bodies. It's not all of them. It's like Mr. Burns and like one other that I couldn't even tell who it was. I I was trying to make that out too. Who was that? I don't know who it was. I mean, maybe it's Betty. The delivery guy. Oh, it's probably the delivery guy. Yeah. All of a sudden, the killer starts coming down the stairs, and and Connie sees, and she shoots. She actually shoots the killer, but apparently, well, she, she, for a moment, she just stands there. And she's like, "Why? Why? What are you doing?" Like it takes for a minute. I'm like, "Bitch, you were shooting at nothing. Now that you've got a target dead in front of you, shoot, bitch." Oh, and she does. She does shoot, and she's like, "Martin, Martin." And this is when the killer's like, "I'm not Martin." And pulls off the mask. This reveal was, if there's one thing about this movie that outdid expectation and threw me for a loop, it's this fucking reveal. Who is it, Troy? The killer is none other than chain-smoking Sadie, Mr. Burns' wife. Of course it is. All signs point to Sadie. (laughs) This little, yes, this little, the 60 year old, four foot tall Italian woman is the killer. <laughs> this dame, this woman who has had absolutely no red herring marks on her whatsoever. Nothing at all alludes to this being the final outcome of the film. Nothing, nothing. And she's the killer. And then in a very like Friday the 13th, but in my opinion, it resembles more than anything. This is where I said Scream 2. Uh-huh. This has a very Scream 2 vibe to it for me. That whole speech, because she is... Sadie really t- takes her moment in the spotlight here. Yes, she does. She's like, I got a monologue, and I'm fucking delivering it. She She's does. Big. She's big. She, yeah. Well, basically what we find out is that um, Martin is her son. And she is upset that they are trying to sell this house and trying to make it into something else because she thinks it should be a shrine to her fucking son. Because he was so sensitive. Yeah. And again, can we mention, there's a few things here that don't make sense. First of all, how did Sadie, how did she get to the house before Burns did to kill him? Yeah. Fair. I mean, she she literally this woman transports throughout this movie like I don't know because she shows up at the house one minute and then the very next scene she's back in her bed with her husband and then the next scene she's back at the house she, uh, she must have some magical powers 
yeah, well, I, I, magical powers. The, the woman can defy logic in the sense of like moving bodies very quickly, like bodies of fully grown men. Like she's well, that's what I, that, that's what I was saying. That when we keep in mind that Johnny was upstairs, she hits him in there with the head head uh, sledgehammer. He has to be about one eighty, and this bitch is probably a hundred pounds. She proceeds to be able to carry him downstairs. And then remember when she stabbed poor guy in the bushes with the walkie talkie and lifted him five feet off the ground with her machete. That little Italian woman's been doing her bench presses. She has some superhuman strength. But anyway, yes, this is a very Friday the 13th slash scream to Lori Metcalf moment because she is out for revenge for her son who was wronged. And just as she's getting ready to stab, kill poor Connie, who at this point is a bumbling, worthless mess. Can we talk about how worthless she becomes? Like She's just cowering in a corner. Yes. And luckily, Barney is still alive because we see a hand come out from under the stairs and grabs the gun. And just as Sadie's ready to shoot Connie, Barney shoots Sadie and kills her. In a very Randy moment. Uh, he comes out of nowhere and he he saves the day. He saves the day. And she's like, I thought you were dead. And he's like, no, no, I was trapped down here. And I got, I started to think the only way to make this killer think that I was, you know, dead was to make her think I was dead. So I just hid. I'm like, she. That does not make any, that's, there's no logic to that at all. The woman would know if she killed you. He knew she didn't kill him because she's the one that locked him in the basement. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Why didn't she just kill him to begin with? She only did herself wrong by not killing him. He's the one that ended up shooting her. Yep. Anyway, so Sadie's dead. You hear the ambulance and police coming. And, but she's not. she gets one last laugh where she lifts her head up from the ground and is like, does her evil laugh and then dramatically drops dead. Yes. Like, in the most dramatic way possible. This actress really made the best of this role. Yeah, and she will be remembered for it in our hearts and in our minds. But, oh, you think it's done, and let me tell you, you're wrong. It's not done because we have an epilogue, and the epilogue is Connie in the shower three weeks later listening to the radio show. And let me say, these are the most insensitive radio hosts since Rush Limbaugh, let me tell you, because they are, like, reveling in the whole – Death of multiple medical students. They are like laughing and like, oh, I heard one of them was head was stuck in a microwave. I heard they ate the other ones. <laughs> I mean, they're having a blast. They're really making light of the situation. Connie can't handle it. And she turns the radio off. She turns it off and she hears a knock at her door and she goes to answer it. And nobody's there at first. And then she, Turns, turns away, and then she, the knock is again, and she answers it this time, and it's the killer! And and what do you do in that moment, Connie? You begin to slowly and dramatically back away from the killer throughout the entire course of your house. She just has her hands up, her hair flailing. She's like, no, what are you doing? What? No, why? 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 And the killer's just slowly like inching towards her and she's just cowering, not defending herself. It's very pathetic. He literally, yes. This Connie is the most pathetic final girl of any fucking horror movie I think I've ever seen. She is worthless 
She and the bitch, the bitch has the nerve to tell the killer, "You're dead. I killed you." No, you fucking didn't, Connie. You sat there crying, Barney. You would have been dead if Barney wasn't still alive, bitch. Barney killed the killer. Shut your goddamn. He saved bitch. her ass, and she then she she gets backed into the bedroom. She falls under the bed, and then she like starts like scaling the bookcase. Like she she really she she is incompetent. At one point, she gets backed against the wall, and to the left is literally the open door, like to exit her apartment, and to the right is like the bathroom or the bedroom, and she's like looking around and she goes to the right like bitch you deserve to get killed yeah no she's dramatically just flailing all over her apartment against against the walls she gets up she actually gets up on the bed is standing on the bed no no (laughs) she's making it real easy for the killer not once does she think to grab a weapon grab anything she throws a dish towel at the killer i mean she does do that (laughs) <laughs> at, least, at least she tried something <laughs> but yeah of all the places she could go she finally backs into the bathroom and doesn't even shut the door no, she leaves the door wide open she really is bringing it on herself and the killer comes in and stabs her in the chest but but it's a fake knife and she looks at the killer with eyes of shock rightfully so Mm-hmm. And the killer is Barney. Bitch, listen. Listen. I don't know. I don't know what the fuck he thinks he's doing. What kind of practical joker he thinks he is. But there are limits. Okay. That shit. Pretty sick. <laughs> And this is what I'm saying, the, the the inconsistencies in this character, because considering how big of a fucking chicken shit he's been 90% of the movie, now you're gonna now you're gonna play this ridiculously cruel, cruel, manipulative, sick joke. It's you think you'd have a shred of sympathy for the poor girl after finding all of her friends deceased. It hasn't even been, it's been two weeks, three weeks, and he thinks, and he thinks, oh, he thinks it's a fucking riot. Oh, he's cackling. He's cackling. You should, you should have seen your face. <laughs> of you course, should. of course, because I just saw a person wearing this exact outfit kill all of my friends. You, of course, I'm going to be terrified. But then, you know what? Ending this movie on a real positive note, in my opinion, Connie does something that I didn't expect. And I have to say to that, good for you, Connie. Good for you. Because, Troy, what does Connie do? Connie proceeds to basically go insane and take a pair of scissors and stab the shit out of Barney. All while doing a maniacal evil laugh herself. And while I do say, good for you, Connie, because that's a, a crock of bullshit what he just pulled. And I would be, oh, I'd be pissed. I would do the exact same fucking thing. I'd be so mad at him. But I also feel awful because now that girl's going to go to prison for killing that motherfucker who honestly got what was coming to him. He got absolutely what was coming to him. So uh, you know what? I feel bad for Connie. That's a shame. Well, I think she'll end up in an insane asylum because that bitch went nuts. Did you see her eyes when she, she, was, she was completely nuts? Understandable. Completely understandable. She will be, yeah. But, and then the credits roll. And that was evil. 
you know, I, here's my conclusion to this film. I would not necessarily say that this is by any means what I would consider a good movie. However, is it an entertaining movie? You bet your bottom dollar it is. Um, I was entranced from beginning to end. Those goddamn fucking songs. I found myself three days later humming them. Humming them to myself under my breath. Uh, I wake up in the middle of the night sweating, singing them. Uh, it's it, They'll never leave my ears. Um, and so I hate you for that. But I do appreciate you for bringing this movie into my life. Not because I think it's a good movie, but because it's extremely fun to watch. It is rife with flaws. I mean, it is a flawed piece of cinema. But uh, as a nostalgic time capsule of that era, I very much enjoyed it. So thank you, Troy, for... Uh, bringing this fine piece of cinema to my attention. Uh, I'll never forget it. Well, that's my job. That's my job. You know, maybe, maybe someday we'll get a Blu-ray release of this because we need that. I think the world deserves a Blu-ray release and we need remastered mixes of party the whole night long. And, um, the other one working, uh, working, those would be great workout songs. Oh my God. Can you imagine that coming up on your mix? Can you imagine being at like a club and one of the, a remix of one of those comes on? You couldn't get me off the goddamn dance floor. Um, but yeah, you know what? I, I don't want to ever let this movie fade away. We need to make sure it's preserved. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's definitely not a prominent slasher film from the eighties. It's when you think of slasher films from the eighties, you don't think of evil laugh. Um, and yeah, it's not a good movie. There are, is a lot of issues with it. The performances are all over the place. There are some strong performances. There are some really bad performances. The, the, the script, the plot makes zero sense, but it's highly entertaining. I mean, if you can just sit back and watch this film with an open mind and just, you're going to have fun with this film. It's, it's, it's fun. It's stupid, but it's fun. There are some films from the eighties that I feel get, a little bit more attention for being like so bad they're good. Like for one, I think of right off the top of my head is like Splatter University, which people always bring that up as being like, oh, it's so bad it's good. No, that movie is just fucking bad. I, I that's a horrible movie. I'm sorry if you're, if you're a fan of that movie. It's it sucks. <laughs> and there's no room for debate. <laughs> it's not even. It's not so bad. It's good. It's just bad. This one. It's entertaining. It, it's so bad. It, it actually is really good. I mean, yeah. it's. Let me say, like, if I like, if you're going to a bad movie night kind of event where people are like, bring your favorite bad movie, like your most obscure bad movie, and you were to bring this, you'd be taking home the, the gold because I, I'm pretty sure that people are not going to have seen this uh, hidden gem <laughs> of a film. Uh, if they have, I, I don't know what they're spending their time doing, but yeah, this is a very obscure title and I, um, I'm very excited to add it to my collection because I feel like I'm going to be able to hook a few people and I know who they are. I have the DVD and apparently now the DVD is super rare. I think someone was posting that they went to get the DVD. They saw the DVD on eBay for like 65 bucks or something. I have it. And it's, you know, I mean, I'm keeping it because it is a film that I will, I, 
I revisit it. I, I will watch this film probably once, you know, every couple of years. I, I just find it highly entertaining. It's so fun. And then knowing the backstory, you know, with, with the, with the actors and what they were involved in after the fact making this film, like, for example, the, you know, the actors that played Connie, like if you read, read the trivia, like she refused to do the, the new shower scene at the end. She, she had a body double, but then like two years later, she becomes a hardcore porn star. Not that she should have done the nude scene. I'm not saying that at all. If you don't want to do a nude scene, don't do it, but just, it's just interesting. And then of course the whole thing with the blonde Jody Gibson being, you know, uh, uh, one of the most prolific Hollywood madams in, in history and spent time in prison for it. It's just, it's interesting to see like knowing all of this and watching this film. And of course, Dominic Braja, who is problematic in himself. If you know anything about uh, him, uh, he has some controversy surrounding him as well, because he's one of the ones that Corey Feldman accused of molesting him. Um, but he, he passed away and it was, you know, we, there's no proof who knows, but um, so this just, there's just the, the involvement in this film is, is interesting. Who's involved in the kind of the story behind all of the characters or the actors and, and the production. Um, because you could tell, I think, I think, I think sort of what makes this movie work in a way is you can tell that a lot of love was behind the scenes in this film. Uh, I think this film was made by people who really loved and appreciated the genre Hence, all of the nods to horror cliches and other horror movies. And I think that makes a big difference. I think if a film is made by a horror lover, someone who appreciates, loves the genre, you're going to tell. You're going to tell. Whereas, you know, a movie that's made by somebody just because they were hired by a production company to make a horror film and they hate horror films, you're going to tell. And I think of like the Nightmare on Elm Street remake, for example. I think that is made by somebody that hates horror films and you can completely tell. Uh, and Rooney Mara hates horror films and it just comes out in that movie. Um, so I think that's what makes this movie work is you, you ever, and I think the cast had a, they, they did their best. They had a blast with it. And I think it comes through um, and it makes the movie fun. Yeah. 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 Though I will just to debate, not to debate, but just to state, you know, who else hates horror movies is Jamie Lee Curtis. And she's one of the most iconic prolific uh screen queens of, of of you know any generation so um i think it's more about did she just come out and say she doesn't really watch them i don't know she, she, she's i've heard her actually say like i hate horror movies she's like i, I don't understand why people watch them i just like, but like she appreciates the fans you know at the same time but but um i think it's more of a of connecting with the material um and understanding whether it be your you're portraying a character or you're directing a film. If you can connect with the material, you connect with the material. The director of the Nightmare on Elm Street remake did not connect with her material, you know? So, but uh, yeah, you can tell that this movie was made with very little, but um, you can tell they made a lot work with nothing at all other than a location and some fake blood. And at the end of the day, do you have something amazing? No, but do you have something that I could sit down and not popcorn uh, to for for an hour and a half and uh, laugh with my friends and enjoy. Absolutely. Like it is a great popcorn flick. And um, I will definitely keep this title in mind just for those kinds of occasions. And it's definitely something that I, um, it's a title that I will include in my uh, 
my collection for that exact reason. Uh, it, it, it serves its purpose. It absolutely serves its purpose. I'm, I'm glad that you had some fun with it. I, I, I assumed that you would, and I assumed that this would be a fun conversation, and I think we succeeded with that. Uh, yeah, let me back. I don't know. Honestly, I don't, I don't know if the director of the Nightmare on Elm Street remake hates horror movies. I just got that impression watching that film because it's so just bland. Disconnected, yeah. But anyway, so yeah, that's Evil Laugh, guys. Um, and as always, I'm excited to reveal my pick for our next episode, which hopefully will be next week. We've been doing pretty good, consistent. Yeah, even through your uh, whole uh, Texas uh, winter fiasco, we still managed to make this happen. Look at us. Yeah, yeah, right. So I'm going to go a little bit more. I don't want to say highbrow because it's not really a highbrow film. Maybe a little bit more uh, slasher artsy. Uh, and for my next pick, I am choosing the film from the late seventies, nineteen seventy-eight, I believe. Directed by Alfred Soul, Alice, Sweet Alice. Classic. Which, with the film debut of the young Brooke Shields. I love this film a lot, and I feel like it has a very pretty good reputation in the horror community. However, I never hear it talked about. So... Has some striking imagery, really striking imagery. Yeah, and I agree with you that you would think this title would come up more. But it's... um. It's a unique one. It's it's different. Um, yeah, I'm excited to discuss it with you. I don't want to go off on a tangent with this because I get carried away. You know how I yeah, am. No, but it's a film, like I said, I I, it's, I haven't seen it for maybe a couple of years, but it's, it's certainly a film that stylistically, um, content-wise, should be discussed a lot more. Uh, I mean, it came out around the same time as Halloween. And of course, Halloween gets all the credit for everything, which, you know. Um, but there's plenty to, plenty to analyze with this one, plenty to read into and d- dissect. There's a lot of religious subtext to it and things like that. So, yeah, so that'll be it. So, guys, tune in next, well, hopefully next week, when we talk about Al- Alice Sweet Alice, a.k.a. Communion, which is another title it's commonly known as. But yeah, so we hope you enjoyed this episode and our discussion of the classic evil laugh. <laughs> I'm overworked. I need, oh, I need a break. Da, 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 da. I know I enjoyed it. I enjoyed every aspect from the vocals that I just got from you, sort of some vocals, Troy, to the film itself, to the delightful banter. I always like chatting this uh, these titles up with you. Thanks for having me. <laughs> So, and guys, so if you have not done so, please look us up on Facebook. Give the page a like. Give it a also, give us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast. We've we've asked that um, just because the ratings do help people find podcasts. Yeah, and don't forget to check us out on Instagram too. I see that number climbing day after day. Troy is a uh, very on top of things with the Instagram. But yeah, guys, follow us on social media and uh, keep keep up the conversations. We really appreciate you commenting and complimenting and uh, sharing your thoughts and opinions on these titles. We didn't know that as many of you knew about this one as, as uh, it turned out, uh, but Troy got a good amount of feedback and comments um, on uh, Evil Laugh. And we uh, we got really excited to review this title because so many of you uh, shared your thoughts on that. So uh, we're happy to hear that we're serving up material that you guys enjoy. Yeah. And as always, shoot us some suggestions and yeah, we will definitely cover them. Absolutely. Until then, until next week, Troy, 
I bid you adieu. Adios, Roger. You have a great evening. Bye, everyone. We will talk to you soon. I'm overworked. 